1 John chapter 4 is where we are today. Slowly making our way towards Revelation. We're about a month out now. Um, and just so you guys know kind of what the plan is at this point, certainly it can change. But uh, when we start Revelation, we're going to do the first couple chapters, which apply to the church today. But before we get into the prophetic side of it, um, we're probably going to take a little break and do at least one, if not two Sundays of a prophecy update. Kind of just looking at world events, things that are going on. Yeah, and so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, it hasn't really taken shape yet, but that's the idea. And, and so we'll definitely look at like Matthew 24 and maybe some stuff from Ezekiel. And, and that what that does is kind of lay the groundwork for everything after that in Revelation. Okay, but I'm really looking forward to our study through Revelation. I've had several people say that they're, they're nervous and excited. So I'm not sure what that means, but either way, that's still the plan. John chapter 4. John has been, uh, again, this is towards the end of his life or the end of his ministry at least. Uh, still has other things still in store for him. But as I've talked about each week, that it's good to know that a man of this maturity that walked with Jesus, was taught by him, is still just in love with the foundational truths. Right? He's not coming up with some new thing nobody's heard, or some great revelation nobody's ever gotten before. He's, he's going back to the basic principles, just being, a, these are the things that still matter the most. Right? That we love the Lord and that we love our neighbor. He keeps hitting those again and again and again. He's also been bringing out how we are to recognize false teachers. Those people that would take the word, twist it for their own reasons, try and, uh, be, whether that's to make money or get popularity or power, whatever it might be, that we are to be wise about these false teachers. And in chapter 3, he was reminding us that not only has Jesus Christ saved us, but he loves us desperately. So much so that he adopted us into his family. And again, he didn't have to go that far. He could have saved us out of responsibility. He could have loved us like a friend or like an acquaintance. But he adopted us into his family. And we understand what that means when we think about our own family. It's a, it's a closeness. It's a love that isn't shown to anybody else. It's, it's, and that's how he sees us. Adopted as his own children into his family. Um, and, and the reason that's important is it comes to false teachers. The false teachers love to make themselves needed by becoming the middleman. I'll tell you what God wants. I'll explain how life works. You need me to know his will, right? And they make themselves the middleman. When we understand that we are adopted as his, as his children, those people are in the way. They're trying to get in the way of my relationship with my Heavenly Father. And I don't need any middleman, right? We've got a relationship like no other. And on top of that, or along with that, in chapter 3, verse 24, it says, And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. That Jesus has not left us here as orphans, but He's given us His Holy Spirit. And it's a symbol of His ownership upon our lives. We belong to Him. We are His kids branded with the Holy Spirit, if you will. And it is, he is a down payment of what's to come in heaven. 
again, no need for a middleman because we have the Holy Spirit that connects us to our Heavenly Father. Now, in chapter 4, he's going to identify some more uh, things concerning false teachers, uh, really about uh, who they say Jesus is and the fruit that's born in their life. These are two simple things to look at in anyone's life, not just a teacher or false teacher. Uh, But he's also got a lot to say about the importance of diving deep into the love of God. The, The more we understand his love for us, the more we're changed by it. And uh, as always, we'll stop for question and answer as we go. Uh, Another little heads up, though. Question and answer is going to be changing. As we get to Revelation, I thought, man, (laughs) there's going to be a lot of questions when we get into Revelation. So I've got some new ideas praying through it. And uh, because there's some things I love about question and answers, some things I don't love about question and answer. And so uh, hopefully we're going to refine that a little bit as we get into uh, Revelation. But same as usual today, question and answer, not statement and discussion, question and answer. Okay, let's pray. God, we thank you for your great love for us. And I pray that you, Holy Spirit, would apply these things to our lives. Give us ears to hear, that we wouldn't miss out on a thing you have. And uh, God, you would just uh, have your way in this place and have your way in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Chapter 4 of 1 John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, by this we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us, and he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In verse 1, where John says, test the spirits. It's a very general, very broad term. It means everything from the spirit within the person speaking to a supernatural being or anything in between. Miracles, wonders, signs. What is the spirit of the person delivering them? And what's the spirit behind what's doing it? And I love the fact that he just says, test the spirits. Don't just assume that something miraculous or supernatural is of the Lord or even of a person. You know, the, the test the spirit of what's being said. And I, he does bring in this idea of the supernatural events and prophecy and visions and dreams or signs and wonders. Um, just because something's supernatural doesn't mean that it's of the Lord. Doesn't mean that it's of God. There is a whole other side to the supernatural world that the Bible's very clear about that is completely evil. When I was uh, in high school for oh, a little over a year, I was involved with a, a New Age cult. 
And they were into astral projection and witchcraft and all these things. And at that time, it was more power than I'd ever seen before in my life. And one of the things that this group would do is that we'd, you know, astral project and they'd come back with all these stories of things that they'd seen and heard and beings that they'd encountered. And, and honestly, some of it was imagination, some of it was lie, and some of it was supernatural. That there was some of it that just could not be explained any other way. But the interesting thing, even then when I didn't know the Lord, people would come back and they would talk about this being that they'd encountered and truth that had been given to them. And, and I'm like, well, how do you know it was good? And they're like, well, I just felt it was good. And even then I thought, what if they were just lying to you? What if everything you encounter is an absolute counterfeit and a lie? And it's just telling you it's good and that you should believe them. And you are, right? So I was very skeptical. Even then, even when I would experience things like that, I'm like, "Mm, that guy could have been lying, right? And there, certainly in the world, there's that idea of if it's supernatural, it's really important. It must be for good. But unfortunately, I've also seen it within the church. Some supernatural event takes place. Someone has a a dream or a vision or a, a visitation. And they instantly assume it must be from God. And, and again, this, this is important because as it applies to false teachers, we need to understand whether we're talking about the spirit of man or the supernatural spirits, a really good lie is 95% true. A really good false teacher will give you mostly truth. Most of what they say is logical, makes sense, it's reasonable, but it's that small little percentage that makes all the difference. It's that little bit of poison that takes people completely off track. And so he says, test the spirits. And he gives a very simple test. Again, sometimes we can get overwhelmed. It's like, well, somebody told me this truth. Man, I couldn't think of the verse to counteract it or, or to, to contradict it, and I didn't quite know what to do it or say. And because we know that the answer's in the Word, but sometimes we just don't know the Word well enough to be able to just draw that out at the, at the moment. So John just gives it real clear, and it's as simple as, who do they say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? I've been in some huge debates, some huge discussions, arguments, and no matter what the topic is, no matter how, you know, grand the scale it starts off as, it comes down to that question. Who do you say Jesus is? And a lot of people try and leave Jesus in this gray area. Oh, well, he was a good teacher, and a lot of what Jesus had to say was very applicable to today, and and, and I respect the teachings of Jesus. But look, Jesus made claims no one else ever made. He said he is God. He's the one and only way to heaven. C.S. Lewis summed it up like this, that if a person makes great claims, they are either crazy, lying, or telling the truth. And that's all you get. There's nothing else. It's one of those three. And when it comes to Jesus, either he knew he wasn't God and he said he was God, which makes him a liar. He wasn't God. He thought he was God, which makes him crazy. Or he is God, and he said he was God, which makes him telling the truth. That's all you get. Who is Jesus? Because if he's crazy, or he's a liar, he's not a good teacher, and the things he shared are destructive. But if he's telling the truth, well, then he's right on. And that's really where it it comes down to. John adds 
that every spirit, in verse 2, that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And that's a lot more than just saying that Jesus existed at some point in time. It's more than believing that he taught in Israel, that he was a Jewish rabbi or a Jewish teacher of his time. To say that Jesus is Christ is what John's saying. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Christ means that he's the Messiah. And again, for John, for in the Jewish mindset, that wasn't just a title. To say that he is Messiah means he is holy God, eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, and that Jesus Christ is God eternal. And on top of that has come in the flesh, that he left his throne in heaven to be one of us, right? And any teacher, any person, any spiritual being, any demon or angel that would say otherwise is not of God. Period. Doesn't matter about the other 95% that they got right. Doesn't matter about the 99% they got right. If they don't believe that, if they don't teach that, they are not of God. And that's the one that most people will end up on, right? They will try and minimize Jesus. He was a person that attained Godhood. He was a person that attained righteousness. Whatever. Good man, good teacher. Nope. John brings it all down to that simple thing that they must point to Jesus being God. That he has always been God. Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians. Excuse me. In Galatians chapter 1. I don't know where I got 1 Corinthians from. Galatians chapter 1 in verse 8. He said, but even if we, meaning we the disciples or apostles or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And the word there, accursed, is very harsh language. It's saying, let them be damned to hell for all eternity. Taking it very seriously. Paul says, man, I don't care if it's us. If I change my story, if someone else comes along, some other church leader comes along, changes their story, or if an angel himself appears to you, man, if it's any other gospel, if it's saying that Jesus is not God, man, let them be accursed. Now, John encourages them, and well, he he lets them know that, first of all, that 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 idea that Jesus is less than God is really the spirit of Antichrist. So again, people can say that in a very pleasant way. They can make it sound like, oh no, I really respect Jesus. But that is the spirit of Antichrist. It is being completely opposed to Jesus. That's what that means. And and not only is it the person that we'll read about in Revelation, it's the spirit of mankind on the earth right now to be opposed to Jesus in every way. And he encourages the, the believers to say, man, you've already overcome them. You've already overcome that because you know who Jesus is, because his Holy Spirit dwells in you, because you know that when you hear those falsehoods that it goes, "Mm, that doesn't seem right. You know that you've already overcome those things and that greater is is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Again, that's, that's huge comfort because it means that we don't have to come up with a perfect verse for every situation. It means that we don't have to have the counter argument for everything. We don't need to know everything in order to, to share Christ with the world. And then when somebody comes against Christ, we can just know that 
The Holy Spirit in us is greater than anyone in the world, the spirit of Antichrist or the devil himself, that the Holy Spirit in us is greater than he was in the world in every way. And we can just be at peace and be at rest knowing that, uh, that that's true and rest in his ability to work through us and in us. Now, one of the things, and John's going to go on to kind of point to the fruit that's in someone's life. What's being born in their life says a lot about that person, right? And the people I look up to are the people that, and there's just a long line of good things, of healthiness in their life, in their family. It doesn't mean they've done things perfectly. I mean, nobody has, and there's plenty of things you can point out. Yeah, you really messed up here. Or that was a mistake. But overall, there's just a healthiness. And, and at the same time, there are those that there is just destruction that seems to follow them everywhere they go. That there's just broken relationships, broken friendships, and that there's, that's some of the fruit that's born in, in their lives. But one of the things that uh, John points to, well, I guess, first of all, one of the things that we get confused is what does that fruit look like? Because I've had people say, oh man, there's this huge church and there's so many people and they've got so much money and all these things. And you know what? They never really talk about Jesus being the only one to heaven. They never talk about hell or sin or any of that stuff. And that place is packed. They've got so much influence. Well, John explains why. Verse 5 says, For they are of the world, and therefore the world, or they speak as the world, and the world hears them. See, if we're not handing out the word of God, then we're a social club. And it's easy to be a social club. And it's easy to be politically correct on all levels and and say what people want to say or what people want to hear. The world will flock to hear that. A few years ago, uh, there were, you know, it seems like there's always some big book that's like the new formula, the new successful way to have life or whatever. And, And there were several books out at this time of how to really be, have a successful Christian life and be a real influencer in life. And so this couple of people took these books and took the principles from them and, and delivered them to uh, totally secular groups. They took them to some sports teams. They also took them to some cults. They took them to these new age cults and went, here, apply these things and see if, if they work for you. And sure enough, they all worked. And so what it revealed is, is these aren't biblical principles. They're just marketing strategies. They're just networking strategies. They're how to influence people and make friends. That's all they were. It had nothing to do with living your best life for Christ. It just was about strategies, right? The world will flock to hear that. We are called to speak the word of God and know that those who are being drawn by him will hear it. See, that's the other thing that's great. It's not up to me or to you to convince anybody to get saved. We're just simply to hold out the truth. The Holy Spirit draws them and explains things to them and saves them. And, and so we just get to be a part of that. But it's our part to hold it out. John says in verse 6 that we are of God, and he who knows God hears us. Um, Jesus said over and over again, to him who has an ear, let him hear. Jesus could have spoken so convincingly that he would have made people believe. He could have used his 
supernatural God powers to make people believers. But instead, he, to the masses or even to the small groups, would say, if you want to hear the truth, this is it. I'm holding it out to you, but it's up to you to take it. To him who has an ear, let him hear. And, and really, that's all we're doing as well. Just holding it out. You want to hear the truth? This is it. And honestly, the truth isn't, isn't fun to hear. I mean, we love to talk about the, the love of God. That's right where John's going, the importance of knowing the love of God. And I think that's where it begins, is that people would know that God of all creation and eternal holy God desperately loves them. But there's, we know plenty of truth that we don't really like to hear that much. That whole forgive people that have hurt you, that's not a lot of fun. I don't repent of things that you don't want to stop. That ain't a lot of fun, right? But it's truth that we need to hear. For us, we're called to simply receive the Word of God for ourselves without twisting it, without changing it, without trying to make it politically correct, but then hand it out to the people that are around us. And it's by the Word of God that we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, right? Again, the Holy Spirit moves us. The Holy Spirit applies these things. But if we're not taking in the Word of God, then we, we can very easily go off course in a lot of different directions. So, all right, questions before we go on? Here, here's one. Um, can an evil spirit say that Jesus is God and still lie about other things and then avoid the consequences? Ooh. Interesting. Because Jesus, like they knew who he was. They knew he was God. Would they confess him as being Lord? And even if you think about in the book of Acts, the woman that, that followed Paul and the others saying, these are messengers from the most high God. And they, she followed them for a couple days until finally Paul turns around and goes, enough, cast the demon out of her. In some way, she was confessing that Jesus had come in the flesh. But there is a difference. And I think, again, the Holy Spirit makes it very clear in us. I don't think that's a hard discernment at all. That I've even had people mockingly say that Jesus is God. And you know right away they're mocking. I think even more so. That if a demon were to say, like that woman did, Paul knew that she was not on the side of the gospel. She was not for Jesus. She was a distraction. And so he dealt with her. Right? When the demons would confess who Jesus was. We know who you are. You're the son of God. And he'd say, don't speak. He didn't need their advertising, right? So yeah, they could say the words, but the reason behind it is completely different and very easily discerned. I don't think that's something that any believer would be tricked by. And there'd be no reason for a demon to trick a non-believer with that, right? So yeah, biblically, I'd say there's plenty of things that show they could say it, they do say it, but it's out of fear and trembling or mockery. Very easily discerned. Great question, though. I like that. Any, anything else? Okay. Verse 7. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest toward us, 
that God has sent His, whole, His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And we know and believe the love of God, the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Good, lasting, eternal fruit is not the things that the world looks at. It's not the big numbers. It's not lots of money. It's not earthly power. It is love. And we find that over and over again in the New Testament. That the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then it goes on to describe what that love looks like. right? In Galatians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 13 gives us such a beautiful description of love, which looks very much like Galatians 5. But it goes on to say that we could do signs and wonders and have knowledge and, and make huge sacrifices. Yet without love, it is meaningless. We are worthless without love. The fruit of the Spirit and the fruit that remains that God is looking for and desiring to birth in our lives is love. The problem is that so many people define love differently, right? And we've talked about that in the last few weeks. It's come up a couple times. You know, there are those that say, oh, love is just following your heart no matter where it leads, no matter the cost, which is really like the, the theme of almost every Disney cartoon, right? It doesn't matter what it costs. Sure, you've got everyone else in peril and trouble, but you did it out of love, right? Or, or love is never having to say you're sorry, which is like the most selfish statement I've ever heard. But... Everybody has these weird definitions of love. And so while there are still levels and there are still degrees of love, the greatest, the highest degree of love is given to us here in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest towards us that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might have life through him. Greater love has no one than this then he would lay down his life for his friends. Man, that is the highest order of love. That's what real love looks like. It's doing what's right and best at my expense for someone else. Not what I want, not what makes me look good, doing what's right and best for another at my expense. It's what God did for us. He gained nothing by saving us. His love was sending his only begotten son to die on a brutal, horrible cross. His greatest expense to save us. That's what love looks like.
And what he did was completely motivated out of that love. And we've also talked about this a couple of times. The importance of understanding that that love isn't just meant to come into our life, but flow out of our lives, right? And so while we're receiving this amazing love, and the idea is, man, we're just getting deeper. We're getting to understand it more and growing it more of how much he loves us. But then it's also flowing from our lives. Verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Right? The, the idea of not only did he lay down his life for me, I'm supposed to lay down my life for others. And I think it, it would be easier if it were the, the one moment decision, right? Where somebody's crossing the street and it's someone you know and a bus is coming and you charge and you push them out of the way and you get hit by the bus and you, ah, I laid down my life for a friend, right? That'd be easy. What we're, what we're called to do is to lay down our lives every day in the monotony of life, in the thousand paper cuts of life every day, to lay my life down for another at my expense. And that's why it's hard. And that's why it requires us continually coming back to be filled up again with the love of God that we can then hand it out. Otherwise, we're giving out an empty vessel. We're not helping anybody when we are just constantly trying to give, 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 but we're not taking in. Now, it, it seems a little bit random where he says, no one has seen God at any time. He's talking about, you know, these things, and all of a sudden he just throws this out. Oh, and by the way, nobody's ever seen God. What? You know, and then he goes on to talk about loving each other. But here's how it flows. It's really not random at all. No one's ever seen God, but everyone can see God in you. And he can see and people can see the love of God flowing through your life towards others. Right? People I knew back in high school would not recognize me at all today because I've been changed. They can see that God has changed my life. I am a different person. Different motivations, different interests, different. And whether they recognize why or not, they see that difference and they see the Lord to some degree. And they can also see it as I love the people around me. They, they see an action. They see the motive. And the great thing is that when we do reach out to somebody else, we can tell them, hey, I'm doing this so you'll see the love of God. I want you to know how much Jesus loves you. I want you to know that the God of all the universe knows you, loves you desperately, and wants you to be a part of his family. And that's good news to anybody that you talk to. And again, these are simple things. For us, as believers, it's letting our words and our actions line up. That we confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God through our words, and that our actions are saying that's true as we love others. Right? Simple stuff. Not simple to do, but simple to understand. All right. Any questions before we go on? Okay. Verse 17 says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who get, he, excuse me, but he that, wow, one more time, but he that, nope, that he who loves God, there it is, must love his brother also. Shouldn't have been that hard. Sometimes it just is. John uses this term over and over again, perfect love or perfected love. And it's this really powerful truth because he's really delivering it from two vantage points or two perspectives. That it's from the way that Jesus looks upon us and it's from the way that we understand Jesus' love toward us. When he talks about the love that God has toward us, he uses a different word for perfect. Usually in the New Testament, the word perfect simply means mature. It's the idea of that we're growing, right? We're being perfected. We're growing in that direction. We're not there yet. It doesn't mean flawless. It means maturing, right? But the word he uses when he talks about God's love toward us, it is an absolute, perfectly complete word. There isn't anything undone. There isn't anything left to be added to, that his love towards us is absolutely complete in every way. But from our side, we're being perfected in it. We're maturing in it. We don't fully understand it. We understand parts of it, but it's an ongoing diving deeper into the depths of his love. The longer we walk with the Lord, the more we should be getting it of this great love that he has for us. But we're in the process. We're being matured um, in the area when it comes to his love. Now, the, the example that he gives that shows that we haven't been made perfect, we understand it to some degree, because we know that on the day of judgment, we can have boldness before his throne. We don't need to fear judgment. Because we're not there going, oh, well, have I done enough good works? Or am I a nice enough person? Will that get me into heaven? We know that that has nothing to do with it. It's because of the cross. It's because of the work that Jesus did on our behalf that we can now stand before him seen as holy and sinless because we've been completely forgiven. However, while we don't have a fear of judgment, we do have fear. We fear the unknown. We fear the future. We fear being blindsided by tragedy or, or loss. And these things are terrifying. We fear them because other things have happened like that in our lives, and we know that they happen. And that's why we're in the process, right? Either way, the answer is, is still the same. And as John delivers these things, he's not delivering it as a rebuke, going, oh, you guys are so fearful, it shows that you're not really in the love of God. That's not it at all. He's, he's delivering it with, look, you know that you don't need to fear judgment, but you're growing in letting all those other fears go as well. That his perfect love that's absolutely complete drives out fear. So the things that I was afraid of a year ago, there's less of them this year. He's, he's been working on those fears, right? And it's the same answer with every single one of them. It's knowing his love more. The more that I understand it, that it's already been perfected towards me. And again, the idea is that, you know, at some point we make this mistake of thinking that 
This perfect love that he has for us at some point got delivered to us to be responsible for. Here's my perfect love. Don't mess it up. And now we're like, oh no, what do I do? If I make a mistake, if I say something wrong, if I don't study the Bible enough, I'm, I'm going to lose his perfect love. Now that's not it at all. See, it's perfect. We can't add anything to it. It never became dependent on our ability to maintain it. The only reason we love him at all is because he loved us first. And if he loved us with that perfect love, when we were sinners, when we were lost, when we were his enemies, why would we think he loves us any less now that we're his children? He loves us with that perfect love, and he can't love us anymore because there is no more. It's perfect. When we understand that, there's really just no more room left for fear. The more I embrace that truth, fear is just being driven out. And yeah, are things going to happen that I'm not expecting? Of course. Am I going to go through trials? Am I going to see loss? Am I going to see suffering? Yeah, absolutely. That's this life. But when I understand his love, then I also know that his love is able to get me through it. And he's going to be right there with me. In the valley of the shadow of death, he will not abandon me. He will get us through. And for now, really for this life, our job is just to receive that love more and more. To take in his word that we might know it, be grounded in it, understand that love. To let that love, and again, that's one way we just let that love flow into our life as we take in the word of God but then we're letting it flow back out to the people that we're around, that they might know that deep, desperate love that he has for them as well. Amen? Amen. All right. Any other questions? I do, Pastor. Carolina. Oh, yeah. No, I think you're right, that, it, that there would be a, a division there. And again, I've, I've yet to actually speak to somebody that's had that kind of interaction, but if it were, and I believe it is possible, but if it were to go down, that would be where it de- deviates, right? Is that, oh no, Jesus is just one of many ways to heaven. And that's certainly people who are leading cults and groups and their vision of angels, that's exactly where it deviates. You know, oh no, Jesus is a way to heaven, but not the only way. And And so, again, what are they doing? They're minimizing him. They're trying to bring him low and say that he's something other than the eternal God and only way to heaven. Yeah. All right. Anything else? All right. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful for your love for us. And and Father, I pray that you'd help us to understand your love more, to go deeper and embrace more than we ever have before, that our lives will be changed by your great love for us. And that, Father, we'd then allow you to let that love flow out of our lives to the people around us, that we would show who you are by what we say and by what we do, that they would see you, Jesus, that they would see you in our lives, and that we get to see people come to salvation. We get to see your kingdom added to and uh, Father, we just we want to be a part of what you're doing. And thank you again for your love, for your patience, and for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.